Give us ears to hear your word. Tune our hearts that we might be those who say, yes, Lord, I'm here. Yes, Lord, I am willing. Yes, Lord, I am submissive to what you ask of me and what you seek for me to do and how to respond to your word. So, Father, may by your spirit, may your word go forth and accomplish its divine purpose this day among us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine if you were a farmer. That's a big stretch for some of us, but let's just go there. Uh, Imagine you're a farmer, and every year you invest extraordinarily large amounts of time and energy to ensure that there is a bountiful crop of corn that would grow during the summer growing season. And before you sow any seeds, and before you uh, apply any kind of fertilizer, which I know is controversial nowadays, but uh, before you water the soil, there is certainly one thing that you would do that you know is absolutely necessary to do in the starting of the of uh, seeing that, that crop of corn come up, and that is to prepare the soil. Prepare the soil. And soil preparation always includes tilling the field. That is, you're breaking up the surface soil that has become hardened along the uh, top. And you do this, of course, by getting in your tractor. Some of us have fancy tractors that have air conditioning and, you know, surround sound and all that stuff. And so you get in the tractor and you're pulling this plow that has a row of blades that are put at an angle. And those blades, as it's pulled across the dirt, it turns the dirt over, cuts into the ground and turns it over. And so that the ground that has been hardened is now on the bottom and the softer soil that lies maybe 8 to 10 inches below the surface has now been brought to the surface to receive that seed, which was the next step of the planting process. It has been that image in my mind uh, as I've thought about this morning and this new series we're moving into regarding Seeking God Because I've begun to think about, in the spiritual realm, all of us are susceptible to having hearts that harden over time. Hearts that at one time may have produced abundant spiritual fruit. I mean, an obvious time in our lives when we were excited about the kingdom of God, we're excited about Christ, we're excited about sharing our faith. But ever so subtly, we have neglected, perhaps, or we have even gotten to the point where we resist certain portions of God's will for us. And we have been perhaps unaware of the precise moment that we've changed our life's ambition. At one time in our life, our ambition in life was being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we really are longing for. And over time, we have gotten to the point where we're pursuing the goal of merely being comfortable. We don't want to change. We don't want to do anything differently. We just want to be comfortable. Now, it's possible that most of the people around us would not even be aware of this kind of subtle change that's gone on in our hearts. We still attend church. We still listen to Christian music. We might even take notes on the sermon. But the soil of our hearts has over time 
become hardened. Our zeal for Christ has diminished. Our motivation for serving Christ has leveled off. Our love for Christ has in some ways waned. Our hunger for righteousness has dissipated. And I wonder, are you, like me, in the category of someone who says, I need revival? Several years ago, I came across a brochure by Nancy DeMoss who compiled a list of likely indicators that obviously would indicate a need for revival. I'm going to read several off on this list. This list is quite long. There's many of them I'm not able to repeat, but see if some of these apply to you in your situation where you are in life. We are in need of revival when we aren't exercising faith and believing God for the impossible. We're in need of revival when we're more concerned about what other people think of us than what God thinks about us. Or when we're unmoved by the fact that three billion people in this world have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Perhaps we're in need of revival when it's obvious that we are unmoved at the thought of our neighbors, our business associates, our acquaintances who are lost and without Christ. We're in need of revival when we are bored with worship. When we're more concerned about our children's education and their athletic activities than we are about the condition of their souls. When we tolerate quote-unquote little sins like gossip or a critical spirit or a lack of love. When we will watch things on television or on our phones or on our iPads. Movies that are clearly not holy at all. When we do not love Christ as we once did. When we would rather watch TV and read secular books and magazines than pull out our Bible and pray. When our church dinners are better attended than our prayer meetings. When we know the truth in our heads and we're not practicing it in our lives. When we make little effort to witness to the lost. When God's people get together with believers and the conversation is primarily about the news or about weather and sports rather than about the Lord. When Christian husbands and wives are not praying together. And on and on and on. There are many different indicators that we're in need of revival. But I don't know about you, but I have found it true that some of those symptoms evidenced themselves in a very clear fashion in my life this past year, indicating that indeed my heart was slowly hardening. Might it be the same for you? When I think about our church, I think about this long, rich history that we have. I think about a number of people who have been involved for so many years here in our our church fellowship, I wonder, might it be that some of us are coasting along in our spiritual life? Has the focus of our heart shifted? Is our relationship to Jesus no longer characterized by vitality, by passion, by complete surrender to Christ? 
I'm asking these questions today because I believe, at least for me personally, and I'm beginning to wonder for us as a church corporately, I'm convinced it's time to seek the Lord. And I say that because I've found this text of Scripture in Hosea, and I've really gone back to it, and I've found it to be something that has challenged my heart. It has made me begin to really want this to be a theme for us the next several weeks. Hosea chapter 10, if you'll find your way to that text of Scripture, just a couple of verses there. I've preached on this book years ago, Hosea. It's page 1080 in your pew Bible. But just two verses I want to focus on. Verses 12 and 13. Hosea, speaking to the people of God, says, So with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. Until He comes to rain righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. In other words, they've been relying on themselves and their own strength to deal with whatever is going on in life. It's time to seek the Lord. We start off the year and on sermons that we're looking at and examining two of the highest priorities that God has given us. To love God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and mind to love our neighbor as ourselves. And obviously, apart from the Holy Spirit's power, the soil of our hearts will never produce an abundance of vital fruit of selfless love for God and for other people unless the Holy Spirit works that in us. And so it's time for each of us, I believe, and for our entire church family to seek the Lord. And I'd like to think about this theme today just by answering two questions. If you're following along in your outline, there's three points outlined, but the two questions I want to focus on at the beginning is, first of all, why seek the Lord? Why is this command here? Simple answer is, it's because the Lord is calling us He's calling you, He's calling us to Himself. The Lord is longing for deep communion, close fellowship. He's longing for immeasurable joy to be shared between Him and His bride, the church. If you know anything about this book of Hosea, you know that God's heart is overflowing with this devoted steadfast love for his people. It's just so clearly communicated in the book of Hosea. A love that just doesn't give up. And it's clear that God, in revealing his love in the unique way he does in Hosea, he cannot casually dismiss his bride ignoring him. He can't just casually dismiss his bride just sort of wandering off from him not communicating with him, not having anything to do with him, and being enamored with someone or someone else. Clearly, God is deeply concerned about anything that would come between him and his bride. And the book of Hosea recounts the true life story of this prophet Hosea and his very sad marriage. 
Hosea was told to go ahead and get married, and so he married this woman who later, after some time had gone by, tragically decided to leave him. And over time, this wife that he truly loves, this woman that he's given himself to and devoted to and says, I am committed to you no matter what, she has turned his back on him and she makes all sorts of sad choices, I guess you'd say, and she becomes entangled in the effects of all of those poor choices that she continues to make. And she becomes desperate because she's cut herself off from him. She's out there. She's vulnerable. She's trying to make it on her own. And she has become so destitute that she becomes trapped into a life of sex slavery as a prostitute. Imagine if you were married to someone who's entrapped in that kind of desperate behavior. And she becomes pregnant not once but a couple of times by different men and God tells Hosea to act in love and to go and redeem that unfaithful wife of his her name is Gomer and so Hosea pays imagine this he pays his hard-earned money and hands it over to Gomer's pimp and says, I want this woman as my own. And he liberates his wife from her enslavement. He takes her back home, and he loves her. He forgives her. He showers her with compassionate, caring, restorative commitment. He says, you still are mine. You see, this true life example of Hosea provides a powerful illustration of the Lord's undying and compassionate love for his people. Hosea's devotion to his unfaithful wife was then and is now a powerful portrait of God's devotion to his bride, the church. And throughout the book of Hosea, he urges the people of God to love God, to not not be content with something or someone other than God, but to enjoy God, to to enter into those blessed bonds of His satisfying, never-ending love and grace and peace. And the book of Hosea is a powerful plea for God's people to enjoy the safety and security of His undying love. And he appeals to his people in the book of Hosea again and again to remain or to re-enter the embrace of of the arms of their gracious Lord. And so God is the initiator here. God continually is pursuing His people out of His heart of love, out of His heart of mercy. That is the call in this text to seek the Lord is because the Lord is saying, I want you to come and enjoy me once again. The Lord's passionate entreaties are the overflow of His heart that never seeks anything other than His glory and our good. I've been thinking also of not only the example of Hosea in the Old Testament, but there's a New Testament example, of course, in the book of Revelation, which, by the way, we've got to start studying in the men's fellowship. Encourage you men to come and join there. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus, of course, who is revealed in such a wonderful way in that book, spends time addressing various churches in that first century. 
And Jesus, the ever-faithful, never-failing bridegroom, gives himself for his bride in a very selfless, devoted way. And he lays down his life on the cross. He redeems his bride to himself. And he sets her free from spiritual bondage. Indeed, Jesus imparts new life into his bride, the church. And he, he enables her to un, enjoy this ongoing fellowship back and forth between those who have been redeemed and set free now are his bride and they can enjoy, enjoy Christ, enjoy the Lord, having that kind of communion and fellowship with him. The Apostle John summarizes this devotion of Jesus to his bride by saying in Revelation chapter 1, he says, Jesus loved us and released us from our sins by his blood at such great cost. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And yet despite Jesus' profound committed love and sacrificial devotion, the hearts of a number of followers of Jesus in the church there in Ephesus became hardened. Their hearts were diverted to some other competing devotion other than Jesus. And so Jesus speaks to this church through John, this prophet, uh, the Apostle John, and he, he speaks to the church members and he commends them. He says, listen, I appreciate the fact that you have shown fidelity in your devotion to true and sound doctrine. And I, I applaud the fact that you've persevered through some difficult times. But Jesus says in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 4, he warns them. He says, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Jesus' rebuke was not designed to point out their failings as if he had lost interest in them. As if he's saying, listen, you've lost your love and so I've lost my love for you. That's not what he's saying at all in this text. Jesus is confronting them and he's not somehow saying, listen, we've grown incompatible and so let's just, you know, we never, things just have not worked out here so let's just move on. He doesn't say that. His word of confrontation is the overflow of his loving longing to enjoy intimate union with his people. His concern was to draw them into this close communion, which they at one time had enjoyed. His heart longed for the members of that Ephesian church to no longer be content persisting in their orthodox beliefs, and, but all the while having a hardened heart. A heart that had transferred its affection for something or someone else other than Jesus. So here's the question I have for us this morning. Having heard the example of Hosea and the heart of God communicated through him and through Jesus' word through the, book, through the church of Ephesus, if Jesus were to walk into our church this morning, what would he say to you? Would he ignore any and all signs that maybe you have abandoned your first love? Would he express concern about the slow process of hardening that's taking place in your heart that exhibits some of the symptoms that maybe you were mentioned there earlier, as I mentioned all those different reasons why we're in need of revival? My friend, God knows our hearts today. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4 says there's nothing hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And Jesus loves to affirm the many worthwhile things that you may be doing. And I'm not trying to suggest that all of us are as bad as we can be. 
that's obviously not the case. Maybe it's not so much the things that you're doing. Maybe it's some of the things that we're not doing that are a concern. But Jesus is mostly concerned that we enjoy Him, that we remain in vital communion with Him, that we have a receptive, humble, submissive, tender, childlike, loving heart. That's what He's looking for in His people. And so the why, the answer to the question, why seek the Lord? Because the Lord wants us to seek Him. He loves us so much. Second question I have is, what does it mean to seek the Lord? What does it mean? Well, Hosea is not looking for people to respond by making a bunch of empty promises. He's not looking for people to just get busier and busier doing things for God. He's seeking, seeking the Lord refers to something radically different than just having an emotional experience. Seeking the Lord involves several responses. I've just listed three. There's numerous others. And it's going to be found in some of this workbook exercises we do at home as we think through what this means over the next several weeks. But first of all, we could say that one way that we can seek the Lord is to receive the Word. Be receivers of the Word. In verse 12, Hosea exhorts his listeners, Break up the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. Fallow ground means ground that nothing has been growing for quite a while. It has become hardened. Since their hearts were hardened by sin, there's the command here that Hosea gives them that they might take the blade of God's Word and plow up their hardened hearts. So the first step to seek God includes the hearing and the yielding to the Word of God. Not just reading it, but reading it in such a way in which we say, Lord, do this, and yes, I'm going to be involved in what your Word tells me to do. Seeking God involves being willing to subject ourselves into the light of God's revealing, penetrating Word. A good text in this regard is James chapter 1. Verse 21, James 1.21 says this, Putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. He talks about dealing with some of that hardness of heart first, and then you can really receive the word. Years ago, as I've told this story numerous times, but it seemed to apply today. We talked about hardened hearts, so I thought about my own heart, my aorta. Apparently, the aorta, which is the largest artery that leaves the heart, had become rather hardened and stiff. It wasn't very subtle. And so, um, at the time, two years ago, in October of 2015, I am have an incident where my aorta has a dissection. It, it sort of splits apart on the inside. And they take me to the hospital, and I am just laying there thinking, what in the world is going on in my body? I felt fine that morning. I had no incident of anything indicating that something was wrong. And the doctor says, we need to check your heart out. We're going to give you a CAT scan. Now, suppose I said to him, look, doctor, you don't need to get that personal with me. Just give me your honest opinion. Look at me and tell you what, tell me what you think is wrong with me. Do you think I would make that kind of statement to the doctor when I'm laying there in the ER? No, I said, do whatever you have to do. Look as intently as I have, as I, uh, look, at, look at me 
as intensely as you need to, as thoroughly as you need to, to find out what's wrong with me. And I'm convinced that if that's the attitude we have when we come to God and we're reading His Word, God will do that. God will expose our hearts. He will make clear the things we need to know about and deal with. And one of the ways I think He can do it very practically is through these workbooks and some of the helpful questions, some of the exercises that we're asked to consider. And and again, there's five lessons for every week. So if you miss it a couple of days, you can make it up. It's not something impossible to do. But I would urge you, to let the Word of God be something that comes deeply into our lives and opens us up and we see what we need to deal with. Secondly, how do we seek the Lord? Well, in response to seeking the Lord, we need to humble ourselves by renouncing pride and admitting, hey, we need help. We need help. As we read the Word of God, our spiritual vision obviously is going to be much more clear. We're going to see better spiritually the more we read the Word. We begin to see ourselves in a new way. Increasingly, we see ourselves as God sees us. And we begin to then take time to devote attention to the condition of our hearts and our souls. We stop using lame excuses about the choices that we continually make. And perhaps we become so used to making those choices we don't even think much about it anymore. But now we will start thinking about it a little bit more. We'll stop focusing on the failures of other people and looking at other people to compare ourselves to and contrast ourselves and somehow think that we need to live up to the standards, opinions of other people. No, now we're beginning to think about what God wants for us and what His will is for us. The more we humble ourselves, we'll come to full awareness that we are the ones who are in need of change. The problem is not always the people outside of us. Lord, I'm the one that needs to change. God will use His Word to break up the fallow ground of our hearts, we then will make ourselves vulnerable. If we truly are humble, we're going to be vulnerable to deal with the real issues of our hearts that have been perhaps for some time we've been content to just ignore it or to overlook it. You see, humility is the opposite of self-confidence. Humility says, I'm not confident in myself. Humility says, I've come to understand that I'm in desperate need of God's help. I will begin to earnestly seek God because I need His power to change my heart. I'm going to seek God for His grace because there are many things I need Him to forgive in my life that I've been overlooking. I need Him to cleanse me. I need His mercy. I'm going to rely on His mercy to patiently bear with me and His love to woo me and draw me into deeper communion with Him once again. You see, the more clearly we see our weaknesses, our utter helplessness, the entangled mess of our sin and compromise in our hearts and lives, the more evident it becomes that we need to lift our eyes upon our loving, gracious, merciful Savior. He becomes all the more precious to us. Because why? We need Him. We are desperate for Him. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 11, encourages the people of God to seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. May that be true of us. But that becomes the passion of our hearts, to seek the Lord continually. On our own, we're going to fail. On our own, 
we have nothing, we can't do anything apart from Christ. Isn't that the lesson of John 15 where he tells his disciples, interesting again, another farming agricultural analogy again, right? So we're the branches and connected to the vine. And Jesus tells his disciples, listen, spiritual fruitfulness comes only because you are abiding in the source of all growth and the source of all vitality, and that is you're abiding in Jesus. Apart from him, we're unable to change. Apart from Christ, we're unable to fight against temptation. Apart from Christ, we're unable to overcome sin. And so the humble seeking after the Lord will also mean that we confess our sins before each other. There may come a time where we just say, listen, I'm going to stop worrying about what other people think of me. I'm just going to confess my sins to God and before other people. I wonder how many of these aspects of humility are already evident in our lives. Part of the seeking of the Lord is we're going to seek Him till we really become humbly desperate for Him. And a final third component of seeking the Lord is to submit to Him. As He speaks to us through His Word, we're going to submit to Him and respond by repenting. To seek the Lord involves wholeheartedly turning away from sin and compromise, doing an about-face. And we're to stop our compromised living at some point, to move beyond regret over sin. There's a quote in your notes there by Kevin DeYoung. He says, regret feels bad about past sins. Do you feel that way? Oh, yeah, I feel bad about what happened here, or I didn't do that. I shouldn't have done that. But repentance turns away from past sins. Repentance turns away from it. A renewed, real love for Christ will lead us to forsake our compromising, complacent ways. The evidence of true, humble hearing of the Word of God will lead us to a changed attitude toward offending God and a heart that desires to break off all these perhaps areas of sinful compromise that have creeped up in our hearts at some times, and we'll yearn now for new ways of right living, pursuing the things that are the evidence of the fruit of repentance. So my call today is to not, let's not fool ourselves any longer. Let's, not, let's stop playing games with God. Today is the day to begin to really seek the Lord. And God stands ready to deal with us in mercy and grace. Please hear me say that. God stands ready to deal with us in mercy and grace. That's how, and for, that's the only reason we can seek the Lord, is because that's the kind of God we're seeking. We're coming to Him. And I want to read this modified version of a verse that's so helpful that my wife read earlier in the first hour during our praise and prayer time. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. God says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Come, call upon him while he's near. Let those who have wandered from Christ forsake their way. And those who have hardened hearts, let them turn their thoughts and return to the Lord. And the Lord who loves each one will have compassion on each one. And return to our God and he will abundantly pardon not just pardon he will abundantly generously graciously pardon all who come indeed the lord is near seek him with all your heart
keep on seeking him until we read there in Hosea chapter 10 where he says, until he rains righteousness upon you. You say, well, what do I do with this sermon? I would like to strongly challenge you to pick up your copy of that Seeking Him workbook, personal workbook, and begin to apply yourself in doing some of these lessons each week, looking through these issues one after the other. Having time to at least listen to God speak to you through His Word is very biblical, it's very helpful, it's very um, appropriate. If we truly are earnest in seeking after the Lord, it will help you in that regard. It will help us as a church in that regard. And then just see what He does in our hearts week after week. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would, on this day, so work in our hearts that it may be true that all of us will be seeking you earnestly and continually, humbly, and relentlessly. May our seeking of you, Lord, bear witness to the fact that we understand and admit that we are in need. We are in need of you. And that we, that we are so longing to experience, to know firsthand, and to enjoy your love, your mercy, and your grace in a more real and vital and dynamic way. We pray that you would infuse life, the life of Christ, a love for Christ in our hearts that would evidence itself in all sorts of dramatic changes, Lord, or subtle changes in our lives and in the life of our church. So, Father, we're crying out to you. As we seek you, we thank you that you can be found and that you are a God who is more than willing to forgive, more than willing to help, more than willing to make anew, and to change us. So Lord, have your way with us, we pray. We are the clay and you are the potter. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.